This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 16 In looking back to this period, and calling to remembrance the numberless proofs of kindness and respect which I received from the natives of the valley, I can scarcely understand how it was that in the midst of so many consolatory circumstances, my mind should still have been consumed by the most dismal forebodings, and have remained a prey to the profoundest melancholy. It is true that the suspicious circumstances which had attended the disappearance of Toby were enough of themselves to excite distrust with regard to the savages, in whose power I felt myself to be entirely placed especially when it was combined with the knowledge that these very men, kind and respectful as they were to me, were, after all, nothing better than a set of cannibals. But my chief source of anxiety, and that which poisoned every temporary enjoyment, was the mysterious disease in my leg, which still remained unabated. All the herbal applications of Tenor, united with the severer discipline of the old leech, and the affectionate nursing of Cory Cory had failed to relieve me. I was almost a cripple, and the pain I endured at intervals was agonizing. The unaccountable malady showed no signs of amendment. On the contrary, its violence increased day by day, and threatened the most fatal results, unless some powerful means were employed to counteract it. It seemed as if I were destined to sink under this grievous affliction or at least that it would hinder me from availing myself of any opportunity of escaping from the valley. An incident which occurred as nearly as I can estimate about three weeks after the disappearance of Toby convinced me that the natives, from some reason or other, would interpose every possible obstacle to my leaving them. One morning there was no little excitement evinced by the people near my abode and which I soon discovered proceeded from a vague report that boats had been seen at a great distance approaching the bay. Immediately all was bustle and animation. It so happened that day that the pain I suffered having somewhat abated, and feeling in much better spirits than usual, I had complied with Cory Cory's invitation to visit the chief Mahavi at the place called the Tea which I have before described as being situated within the precincts of the taboo groves. These sacred recesses were at no great distance from Marheyo's habitation, and lay between it and the sea, the path that conducted to the beach passing directly in front of the tea, and thence skirting along the border of the groves. I was reposing upon the mats, within the sacred building, in company with Mahavi and several other chiefs, when the announcement was first made. It sent a thrill of joy through my whole frame. Perhaps Toby was about to return. I rose at once to my feet, and my instinctive impulse was to hurry down to the beach, equally regardless of the distance that separated me from it, and of my disabled condition. As soon as Mahavi noticed the effect the intelligence had produced upon me, and the impatience I betrayed to reach the sea, his countenance assumed that inflexible rigidity of expression which had so awed me on the afternoon of our arrival at the house of Marheyo. As I was proceeding to leave the tea, he laid his hand upon my shoulder, 
and said gravely, Abo, abo, wait, wait. Solely intent upon the one thought that occupied my mind, and heedless of his request, I was brushing past him, when suddenly he assumed a tone of authority, and told me to moi, sit down. Though struck by the alteration in his demeanor, the excitement under which I labored was too strong to permit me to obey the unexpected command, and I was still limping towards the edge of the pee with Cory Cory clinging to one arm in his efforts to restrain me, when the natives around, starting to their feet, ranged themselves along the open front of the building, while Mahavy looked at me scowlingly, and reiterated his commands still more sternly. It was at this moment, when fifty savage countenances were glaring upon me, that I first truly experienced I was indeed a captive in the valley. The conviction rushed upon me with staggering force, and I was overwhelmed by this confirmation of my worst fears. I saw at once that it was useless for me to resist, and sick at heart, I reseated myself upon the mats, and for the moment abandoned myself to despair. I now perceived the natives, one after the other, hurrying past the tea, and pursuing the route that conducted to the sea. These savages, thought I, will soon be holding communication with some of my own countrymen, perhaps, who with ease could restore me to liberty, did they know of the situation I was in. No language can describe the wretchedness which I felt, and in the bitterness of my soul I imprecated a thousand curses on the perfidious Toby, who had thus abandoned me to destruction. It was in vain that Cory Cory tempted me with food, or lighted my pipe, or sought to attract my attention by performing the uncouth antics that had sometimes diverted me. I was fairly knocked down by this last misfortune, which, much as I had feared it, I had never before had the courage calmly to contemplate. Regardless of everything but my own sorrow, I remained in the tea for several hours, until shouts proceeding at intervals from the groves beyond the house proclaimed the return of the natives from the beach. Whether any boats visited the bay that morning or not, I never could ascertain. The savages assured me that there had not, but I was inclined to believe that by deceiving me in this particular, they sought to allay the violence of my grief. However that might be, this incident showed plainly that the Taipees intended to hold me a prisoner. As they still treated me with the same sedulous attention as before, I was utterly at a loss how to account for their singular conduct. Had I been in a situation to instruct them in any of the rudiments of the mechanic arts, or had I manifested a disposition to render myself in any way useful among them, their conduct might have been attributed to some adequate motive. But as it was, the matter seemed to me inexplicable. During my whole stay on the island, there occurred but two or three instances where the natives applied to me with the view of availing themselves of my superior information, and these now appear so ludicrous that I cannot forbear relating them. The few things we had brought from Nukahiva had been done up into a small bundle which we had carried with us in our descent to the valley. This bundle, the first night of our arrival, I had used as a pillow, but on the succeeding morning, opening it for the inspection of the natives, they gazed upon the miscellaneous contents as though I had just revealed to them a casket of diamonds, 
and they insisted that so precious a treasure should be properly secured. A line was accordingly attached to it, and the other end being passed over the ridge pole of the house, it was hoisted up to the apex of the roof, where it hung suspended directly over the mats where I usually reclined. When I desired anything from it, I merely raised my finger to a bamboo beside me, and taking hold of the string which was there fastened, lowered the package. This was exceedingly handy, and I took care to let the natives understand how much I applauded the invention. Of this package, the chief contents were a razor with its case, a supply of needles and thread, a pound or two of tobacco, and a few yards of a bright-colored calico. I should have mentioned that shortly after Toby's disappearance, perceiving the uncertainty of the time I might be obliged to remain in the valley, if indeed I ever should escape from it, and considering that my whole wardrobe consisted of a shirt and a pair of trousers, I resolved to doff these garments at once, in order to preserve them in a suitable condition for where should I again appear among civilized beings. I was consequently obliged to assume the Taipei costume, a little altered, however, to suit my own views of propriety, and in which I have no doubt I appeared to as much advantage as a senator of Rome enveloped in the folds of his toga. A few folds of yellow tapa, tucked about my waist, descended to my feet in the style of a lady's petticoat, only I did not have recourse to those voluminous paddings in the rear, with which our gentle dames are in the habit of augmenting the sublime rotundity of their figures. This usually comprised my indoor dress. Whenever I walked out, I superadded to it an ample robe of the same material, which completely enveloped my person and screened it from the rays of the sun. One morning I made a rent in this mantle, and to show the islanders with what facility it could be repaired, I lowered my bundle, and taking from it a needle and thread, proceeded to stitch up the opening. They regarded this wonderful application of science with intense admiration, and whilst I was stitching away, old Marheyo, who was one of the lookers-on, suddenly clapped his hand to his forehead, and rushing to a corner of the house, drew forth a soiled and tattered strip of faded calico, which he must have procured some time or other in traffic on the beach, and besought me eagerly to exercise a little of my art upon it. I willingly complied, though certainly so stumpy a needle as mine never took such gigantic strides over calico before. The repairs completed, old Marheyo gave me a paternal hug, and divesting himself of his morrow girdle, swathed the calico about his loins, and slipping the beloved ornaments into his ears, grasped his spear and sallied out of the house, like a valiant Templar arrayed in a new and costly suit of armor. I never used my razor during my stay in the island, but, although a very subordinate affair, it had been vastly admired by the Taipees. And Narmany, a great hero among them, who was exceedingly precise in the arrangements of his toilette and the general adjustment of his person, being the most accurately tattooed and laboriously horrified individual in all the valley, thought it would be a great advantage to have it applied to the already shaven crown of his head. The implement they usually employ is a shark's tooth, which is about as well adapted to the purpose as a one-pronged fork for pitching hay. No wonder, then, that the acute Narmany perceived the advantage my razor possessed over the usual implement. 
Accordingly, one day he requested as a personal favor that I would just run over his head with the razor. In reply, I gave him to understand that it was too dull, and could not be used to any purpose without being previously sharpened. To assist my meaning, I went through an imaginary honing process on the palm of my hand. Normandy took my meaning in an instant, and, running out of the house, returned the next moment with a huge rough mass of rock as big as a millstone, and indicated to me that that was exactly the thing I wanted. Of course, there was nothing left for me but to proceed to business, and I began scraping away at a great rate. He writhed and wriggled under the infliction, but, fully convinced of my skill, endured the pain like a martyr. Though I never saw Narmany in battle, I will, from what I then observed, stake my life upon his courage and fortitude. Before commencing operations, his head had presented a surface of short, bristling hairs, and by the time I had concluded my unskillful operation it resembled not a little a stubble-field after being gone over with a harrow. However, as the chief expressed the liveliest satisfaction at the result, I was too wise to dissent from his opinion.' 